and gaining being influential, not persuasive, but persuasive if need to be. <laughs> being influential with and connecting with those leaders who have that on the ground perspective um, with those leaders, giving folks grace to say, let them speak their piece. There's so many times in those rooms where she would listen, just the ability to listen mm -hmm. is graceful. Yeah. Um, especially when we're talking about future war um, and we're, we're, we're guessing what that could look like. Mm -hmm. So you obviously have to listen to people who might have combat experience, but literally by your position, you don't have to, mm. you don't have to. Yeah. So the grace in doing so was an example of, of what I saw. So zooming all the way down to my perspective, right? I've got people in my formation that I've been in the army longer than they have been alive, <laughs> right? But affording them grace to speak up if I ask for a perspective and being humble enough to listen yeah. is something I can absolutely mimic from my time seeing the secretary of the army do it. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to the Intentional Leader Podcast. No matter how you are coming to this show, I hope you leave inspired and with some practical tools to help you lead yourself more effectively and have a higher impact as a leader. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's go make it count. All right. Well, hello everyone and welcome to episode 101 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. I'm really excited to welcome back Dr. Chevy Cook to the podcast. Chevy joined the show back on episode 36 and a lot has happened in his world since that interview and we talked about all of it in this interview. He graduated from his PhD program at Tufts, served as the speechwriter for the Secretary of the Army, went through the Battalion Commander Assessment Program and now serves as a Battalion Commander, which is a leader of about 500 to 700 individuals, soldiers in the army. And so we dive into all of that, plus a lot of the great work he's been doing as the executive director of the nonprofit Military Mentors. This was a fun interview with a heavy dose of inspiration and some practical tips from a great leader. We talk about what his PhD program was like, how that impacted how he parents, because he's entire PhD program was on character development. He talks about what it was like to write speeches for the Secretary of the Army, his thoughts on the assessment process that he went through to be selected for battalion command, and some of the key things he learned about himself. And we go into how he's able to do everything that he does, some self-management tips for those of you who are trying to manage a full-time job, manage life as a parent perhaps, maybe even some endeavors that you do on the side. Well, Chevy is a wonderful resource and he gives us some great insights on that. So I just want to say thank you to all of you who continue to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple, Spotify. That makes a big difference. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you haven't done that, that would mean so much to me if you'd take a few minutes to go rate and review us on wherever you listen to podcasts. It just helps us bring in new leaders to this community. Thank you for listening today. And without any further ado, let's jump into my interview with Chevy Cook. All right. Well, Dr. Well, Colonel Dr. Chevy Cook, welcome back to the Intentional Leader Podcast. Great to have Thanks you back. Thanks for having me, Cal. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for I, I, We can't help but laugh at that because uh, 
that's like an inside joke for army folks and military po- <laughs> folks with a with a degree like this is is it doctor colonel colonel doctor which one goes first it's, it's all love. A, all good it's it's a good problem to have too many <laughs> too many titles to keep up with well let's start there okay. i want to start with talking so last time you came on the podcast we we really yeah. did a had a fun time talking about your story kind of leading up to your experience mm-hmm. going into your PhD program. Now mm-hmm. you've completed your PhD program. Tell us about mm-hmm. what that was like wrapping that up and then getting into your your next job as mm-hmm. working for the Secretary of the Army. Tell us a little bit about that process. So um, PhD was you know great, a phenomenal experience. No doubt um, the most developmental experience I've had in my life up to and including current time as a, as a battalion commander, um, just the way it, uh, made me think deeply about a topic, but also what it taught me in terms of, uh, not just the lessons and the material, but what it taught me kind of about life. So let me, let me explain it this way. Um, you would think learning, you know, at that level, getting a PhD would be something that man, you know, you're, you have this depth, this subject matter expertise, but it actually taught me is how much I didn't know about the topic that I was mm. interested in. And then it scared me with regard to all the other topics across the universe that I didn't have that kind of depth on. So that's why I say it was so developmentally challenging for me because it you think you're going to be, you know, have this such wealth of wisdom on this one thing, but then you realize how much you actually don't know. So it was really, really unique. What was your topic of study? So the full degree is child studies and human development. With with regard to that whole spectrum, I focus on the human development side. So cradle to grave development. Hmm. Within that sphere, I looked at uh, post-adolescence on forward. So basically, you know, mainly adulthood. And within that, I focused on character and the development of character. Wow. Both at the individual and the organizational level. And the story behind that is uh, every bit of research is some research. And some of my story from the last time, the way I grew up, um, mm-hmm. the challenges I had, I wanted to know how a young man like myself could grow up in a neighborhood that uh, didn't snitch, you know, didn't trust authority figures, et cetera, et cetera, could go to an institution like West Point. And then on the back end, a person become a person that does not lie, cheat, or steal, no tolerate those to do. So I did become a snitch, uh, <laughs> and I did become an authority figure. So I wondered how a person could do that, how their how their character could adjust that way. But I was also interested in how institutions could do so. Um, obviously, going through West Point, changing my life. Um, I wanted to know about more about that, and I think I did learn uh, uh, just a little bit about. I'm it. sure. I'm <laughs> sure you did. Yeah. <laughs> what what do you you mentioned how it was in a way interesting because you you think you go in and you're going to learn so much and I'm sure, and you did learn a lot but then there's also this mm-hmm. feeling of there's so much out there that I don't know that I still have to learn what do mm-hmm. you do with that this this realization which is interesting to me by the way you know you 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 would like you would I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people that get a PhD and walk away maybe with an opposite feeling of just, hey, I got it all figured out. I know it all. Look, I got the PhD to prove it. Mm-hmm. But so I appreciate your humility and, and curiosity that that created in you. 
but what do you what do you do with that i guess feeling of wow there's so much out there to know that i don't know i think you uh i think you harness it into i'm gonna use the term you use you harness it into curiosity you know, if there, if you do know so much about one subject and what you don't know about one subject, like I do about character, then you realize, well, there's so much I don't know out there that I want to be more curious about. Now, what a PhD did teach me is how to ask the right questions, mm. right? How to parse out data. Um, I was one of those folks that was focused on multi-methods. So I didn't, I'm not just a numbers guy. I can crunch numbers, but I prefer qualitative methods. So talking with people and doing focus groups. So understanding the breadth of how to look at problems, it taught me all of that. So that's what I took away from that, uh, that vast kind of punch in the face, vast mm. understanding, you know, misunderstanding, <laughs> understanding, whatever you want to call it of, man, there's so much I don't know, but I can be eternally curious and ask the right questions to help me dive into these other subjects. Um, sh shoot, character alone. Um, there's a component of it that is biological, right? There's mm. a component of it that's genetic that I don't know anything about because I'm not a geneticist. I would call myself a developmentalist. Um, so just that alone, knowing how to look at the other side of my own coin mm. helps me look at all the other change that's in your pocket. If that makes sense. What it does. What would you say is the biggest practical takeaway from your PhD? Because I, I imagine Ooh. and that, that's gotta be one of the challenges when you get so writing a dissertation, so much of it is probably maybe theoretical or things that mm -hmm. maybe don't have an immediate application. What would you say is is the biggest practical takeaway you would give to people from studying character? Mm. that character is vast and ever-changing because it's a component of your personality. So there are people out there, you know, this easy kind of nature versus nurture debate. We've all heard of it. There is the other debate about whether leaders are made or they're born. I want to take it one more step to get to the practical sense of understanding how how much we can change over time. The science says males become much more conservative over time than females, for example. So you can call yourself extremely liberal, have very liberal views just throughout life, men mostly, but women too. We all become more conservative. Now the common sense practical application of that is you're conserving life and energy and resources over time. And it's just played out into our worldviews. So that's probably the most practical thing is just knowing that it changes. We will change. Mm. And your life experience contri experiences contribute to um, whatever you define as character. Because mm. uh, we could probably have eight more oh, podcasts yeah. on us oh, just yeah, defining yeah. what character is. Yeah, yeah. We could get real, real nerdy, <laughs> real fast. What, uh, how did it, did it change the way you parent in any way? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, yes and no. Um, the yes side of it is, well, you know, now I look at my kids and my fatherhood and my husbandry 
in a way that's slightly scientific. I can't help it. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, but no, in the sense that I don't want to be Dr. Cook in my house. I want to be dad. <laughs> right. No, in the sense that the best advice I probably got about parenthood still maintains its relevance. My, that advice was from a high school friend who had a kid before me who said, do what feels natural. Hmm. You know, your gut, your heart will tell you what to do. If it feels hmm. right, then it might be. Yeah. Um, so that's what it didn't change. Now I just kind of know more about when I see something manifesting or in particular, my youngest is autistic. So she's on a develop, uh, different developmental trajectory than most. And the world will labor her as not normal, even though her eyes only see the world in a certain way. Um, so I understand kind of those pieces of her, those pieces of her older sibling and those pieces of me and Ashley as we parent from a scientific perspective. So maybe I have a little bit more understanding there. But it doesn't stop me from being, hopefully, the caring, considerate, you know, kind dad that I am, uh, because I don't need to be a scientist to to be that. I'm curious, uh, since we have an expert here, and, and this is a topic because as a parent, I've thought and I've read a fair amount on it. Just this idea of should we should we praise the outcome or should we praise the effort mm-hmm. and the process? Kind of getting, and I think Angela Duckworth has has done some stuff yep. on this. Um, mm-hmm. Carol Dweck, and and I'm just mm-hmm. curious your view on that. Do you agree with that? Is that too simplistic? Mm-hmm. And that's the idea of, you know, if my my kid comes home with uh, an A plus, mm-hmm. do I do I praise that? And then of course, the, I, I think the argument, and you could, I'm sure you could say it better mm-hmm. than I is that. What you're, if, if there's a high level of talent and, and gifting there, then you're, they've kind of arrived. But if you praise the process and the effort, then mm-hmm. over time that you're building that grit, that perseverance that, that ultimately leads to probably a higher level of accomplishment over time. What are your thoughts on that? So uh, disclaimer, Angela Duckworth was on my committee Okay. For my PhD. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> she, she was the first person to ask me a question in my defense. And her oh, first wow. question was, how do you define character? So Ooh. we don't need to get into that because that, tra- <laughs> that was slightly traumatic. And Angela, if you're listening, you know I love you. Um, but That's not a softball, to- huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not a softball. No. <laughs> when, when one of the world's internationally renowned uh, – yeah. Persons on characters asking you how you define it. Oof, <laughs> that makes for not an easy defense. Uh, she she was good, uh, and it was really uh, stretching. But to get to the core of your point, uh, the question you're asking, I think what's most important is the praise piece. Hmm. So you you know the piece about praising effort or praising the result. No, the praise is what's important. Okay, the appraisal of your child, the person you're bringing into the world, if it's, if it's has a positive affect, I think that's more important. Uh, you have to judge in the moment, I think, whether it's more important to praise the result or the effort. And you would only know that. And I say it's a royal you now, Cal. I'm talking about listeners mm-hmm. out there too. Yeah. You would only know what's right and correct for the moment, one, and for the child, too. Okay. For example, 
Um, I've already kind of mentioned that I have uh, a child on the spectrum and I have another child that's not. I have to approach them differently uh, because that's what the nature of the world has given me as my circumstances for kids. But I would tell you, I would approach them both differently if they were both, quote unquote, unnormal to some people's terms, right? There's kids in my classroom at one point when I was at teaching at West Point, I had to treat them all different too, mm. right? So I think it depends on the moment and the circumstances in which you're trying to emphasize. Now, there's a lot of ideas out there about motivation, intrinsic versus ex extrinsic, uh, hygiene factors versus uh, motivator factors. If you've read uh, Daniel Pink's Tribe and kind of got into some of that stuff. Um, McGregor's Theory X versus Theory Y. There's all kinds of stuff out there um, that would help you figure out what to do in the moment. But again, I think you have to be very aware of what you're trying to do as a parent and what you're trying to do ultimately as a leader for your little tribe and what's required in that moment. There are times when you absolutely have to praise effort because maybe the results didn't come out the way that we all wanted them to mm. or hope they would. But then there's other times when you got to praise the other end of the spectrum because things did work out. Yeah. The bottom line is, I think, coming from a, a perspective of praise and of being your children's first cheerleader is the most important thing because life sucks. Yeah. It, it just does. Life is hard. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's cool, too, because we talked about that last time you and I were here and we were mm -hmm. kind of talking about your story and it was neat to trace back some of those key figures in your mm -hmm. life and, and then how cool now to go full circle where you're the, mm -hmm. you're the expert on, on <laughs> development. And, uh, so I, want to, I want to shift to yeah. how you became, and I don't know what the official title was. Uh, my understanding, one of mm -hmm. the roles was the speech writer for the secretary. Was that the actual title or was there a different title that for the there's secretary a, of the army? A, Sorry, I didn't finish that, a that sentence. Okay. There's a joke there. Official title was speechwriter to the Secretary of the Army or a speechwriter for the Secretary of the Army. You could debate whether it was two or four. <laughs> um, but our internal joke on the staff and my internal uh, joke with her was that I was her speech facilitator. Uh, I was her speech, speech facilitator. Ooh. And I can tell you why. Please tell me. So, um, as I was gearing up to prepare for the position, now... To set the context, I'm at about, what that was, about 17, 18 years in the Army. I never worked in the Pentagon. Never worked on a staff larger than the battalion level. Um, and I, I, you know, worked the vast majority of my career in special operations. So a very niche, small perspective, then ginormous. So I was doing all this rapid fire, get myself ready for what I think I'm going to do. And one of the things I did was I looked at speechwriters um, and I, and I scoured the net for different modus operandi for approaching the job and research. And I came across um, former president Barack Obama's speechwriters. They're very famous. Mm -hmm. um, they, they do a lot of talks, a lot of podcasts, uh, but any president's, speechwriters are. Mm -hmm. um, but for, I think a lot of people would say he was a pretty eloquent, eloquent president. Yeah. So how do you write for that guy? Right. 
Well, one of the things I learned from one of them was that you're a facilitator. They said when Barack Obama interviewed speechwriters, one of his first notes in the interview was, hey, I'm a better writer than you are. Know that. Hmm. What you are doing is saving me time because I don't have the time to write, to research, to think of the ideas. So yeah. I went into the role that way. And there came upon a time when uh, me and the secretary had some time. We were working on something in particular. And um, we were both a little bit late on our timeline. And uh, she was apologizing, saying like, hey, Chevy, I'm sorry um, that this is kind of going. It's a little bit late. And I know this can be taxing. She was just she was showing her leadership is really Mm -hmm. phenomenal. And I was like, hey, ma'am, I would I'm here to facilitate. And I told her the same story that I'm telling you now about Mm -hmm. what I learned about speech facilitation. It's like, ma'am, I know you can write better than me. She's much more uh, policy. I mean, she's a policy powerhouse. Mm -hmm. Um, She's a great leader. She has so much more experience in the building uh, than I do. I was just here to help facilitate. If she wanted me to do something, I would. Um, And that's what I came to uh, believe in. That's actually what's on my plaque in my office. It says speech facilitator. Speech facilitator. It does. That's our that's our internal joke. So what did you learn from what did, what, what did you learn most from that experience? That seems like a really could be a very formative experience at such a high level obviously. You 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 are helping facilitate the speeches that are going to be given by the secretary of the army mm-hmm. who leads a million plus service right. members and affects lives across the world. Well, that was the number one thing no big I deal. learned about the, the <laughs> no big deal. Uh, I learned that that facilitation piece, how important it was. Look, I didn't need to be a good writer. Anybody, the clacking of the keyboard can be done by many. We all write emails. We all work in spaces. Very few of us don't work in a space where we're writing something, right? Emails, texts, you know, presentations, people can do that. Uh, what she needed, what our army needed, uh, what I think anybody that's doing facilitation or writing for somebody needs is, is that kind of research piece. Could I do all the, can I get the facts right? Did I know what stories that might work? Did I know the, the, the place, uh, she was going to speak? Did I know who was going to be in the audience? Did I know what the, Uh, reporters in the audience were tweeting about, Mm. right? All those things that she um, didn't just didn't have time to look for. That's what I learned. The importance of being prepared and being on the spot about um, knowing that level of those details. You know, there was a time where we were, um, we're going to give out three medals of honor. Uh, We're going to give out three at a time. This was a couple Decembers ago. So it was unprecedented. We hadn't done that in a while. So for me to set her up for success meant I had to talk to three different families. You know, uh, one of them uh, was alive, two were deceased. Mm. So I had to dig up those stories. I had to talk to soldiers who were on the X when things were happening, you know, one of the soldiers, former battalion commander, you know, Lieutenant Colonel at the time is now a four-star general, right? Oh, wow. 
that that person's platoon leader was now a battalion commander, right? Like I'm drudging up all that old stuff and just to be diligent about finding the information and making sure it went into something coherent and beautiful and representative of our army values and the moment of receiving the nation's highest honor um, was not easy. But if you're a professional and you realize the importance of the moment, you realize the gravity in that situation, you realize the importance of your due diligence, then those long phone calls and the tears you might share, because that did happen, mm-hmm. are all worth it. And that was a huge lesson for me. And then you zoom it out from being in that office. And what does that mean for everyday leadership? It requires you to be engaged. It requires you to be thorough. It requires you to do it without receiving any praise, right? Like I learned all of that stuff in the background. You know, the speech didn't say this was written by that guy over there, (laughs) right? Um, So I learned the importance of just doing the work because that's what's required. That level of detail, that level of um, connection, that level of engagement is what's required. And squad leaders and team leaders and platoon leaders can be doing that too. You have a lot of leaders listening, many of Mm -hmm. whom probably give speeches on a regular basis, have to speak Mm -hmm. to different audiences. They, many of them probably don't have speech writers or speech facilitators. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Any, any advice for just what goes into an effective speech or some of the the key things that you learned or things that you, maybe you had in mind as you were trying to help her prepare for a particular audience? Any, any key ingredients to giving a, an effective speech like that? Uh, so the common sense things like, you know, know who's in the audience and, uh, you know, know the venue, know the topic. It, they, those kind of make sense, but I want to draw that out a little bit. I would say put your audience up front. What most people do is they think about the topic, right? This is a Memorial Day speech. So they start there. Oh, what can I say about Memorial Day? No, 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 no. Do It's something you need to do in reverse. You need to reverse, uh, uh, what do you, reverse engineer what's actually going to happen at the event. So who is going to be there? Are you doing a Memorial Day speech for uh, New Englanders? Uh, Because they might have a different perspective on what Memorial Day looks like, or they might have a different kind of politics about themselves in Southern California or Florida or Georgia or Alabama. Right. So reverse engineer who's going to be there. Who's a Memorial Day speech for mostly Vietnam veterans might be different than mostly global war and terrorism veterans. So put your audience right up front. Put yourself in that seat. If you're of that ilk, that's going to be in the audience and realize what they may want to hear, what may pull on their heartstrings, their memories, because that's most relevant. I gave a Memorial Day speech myself as a, you know, in the role that I'm in now at an event that was here kind of locally. And most of them uh, were Vietnam War veterans and Korea War veterans. Mm -hmm. 
So I didn't tell a lot of my GWAT stories. Right. Right. Because it, it wouldn't necessarily resonate completely. Mm. Their stories matter more. So that's what I would tell you. That's the number one thing you can do. Uh, number two, really easy one. If you can avoid numbers, avoid it. Because the last thing you need to say is like, you know, how many people were, uh, you know, gave their life at, a, at an event and you'd be wrong, right? Mm. At a certain battle or over the course of the wars and, and be wrong with a number or something and then be jammed up with somebody fact checking you on something that is is relevant uh but also can be taxing that's interesting uh and, and it's it's well I, first of all let me just comment on the first thing you said i, I i've been recently listening to a number of john maxwell's mm-hmm. podcast that he's been doing on his most recent book i think it's the 16 mm-hmm. laws of communication i think he spoke yeah. to thirteen thousand plus Mm-hmm. Uh, or he's done 13,000 plus speeches. And that was mm-hmm. one of the number one things he says is, is good speakers are still focused on themselves. Excellent, great speakers get over themselves and are completely mm-hmm. about the audience. So I think that's really yes. neat to hear you say that, kind of echo that same idea that mm-hmm. it's it's about putting yourself in the shoes and the, and, and the audience sitting in the chair, just thinking about mm-hmm. who it is and, and making yourself all about them and connecting mm-hmm. Uh, with them. And then the, it's interesting too, because we think about this a lot as attorneys, as we're trying to be persuasive. And often mm-hmm. it is those numbers. I mean, it's nice to like throw some numbers in yeah. there, but that kind of gets at some of the logos, but not the pathos, not the emotion, Correct. not the story. Yeah. And I think it's those yeah. stories that connect. It's mm-hmm. not the data often that's mm-hmm. connecting you, it's this, the story mm-hmm. that, oh, yeah. that really brings the audience in. Uh, oh, yeah. So that, that's really neat. Um, Chris I, Widener, I, I, nerd yeah. moment. Chris yeah. Widener has a book called, um, oh man, I just lost it. The Art of Influence. Hmm. Chris Widener, The Art of Influence. And in this book, he has the four golden rules of influence, which I don't want to get into, but I do want to get into his idea. He, he thinks of an idea um, well, he doesn't think of an idea. He explains the idea of the difference between influence and persuasion. He argues that um, they're not synonyms. Hmm. He says persuasion is something you do to someone. You're pushing them, almost like a kind of think of a used car salesman. Mm-hmm. But he was ar- argue influence is something someone does to themselves. Mm. If you are influential, someone else is changing their own actions and behaviors and beliefs and attitudes with regard to what you may be presenting. So influence happens within, persuasion happens to a person. And I like how he parses that out. Mm -hmm. If you're truly influential, someone else is making their own judgment. If you're being persuasive, you're kind of pushing it on them. And I thought that was kind of unique when I look at Cialdini's famous work, book called Influence, and then in a tagline, it's like the concepts of the, you know, the the psychology of (laughs) persuasion. Um, So he wanted, Chris Wagner wanted to add to that by kind of parsing them out. And uh, if you look at both of those books, they do talk about what exactly what you're talking about. This emotion, you know, Mm. this reciprocity, this liking you know, the kind of principles that Cialdini brought up. He's got seven of them. So, yeah, it's 
it's stories, it's connectivity, it's emotion, it's all of those things. Yeah, logic matters, but humans are uh, frail creatures who uh, want to be comforted and safe, and that's speaking from emotion. That's so good, and I, I think often, and I've, I've been guilty of this, when, I, when I'm gonna give a speech, the first thought is, I, oh, I want to, I want to do well. I want to do well. I want, I want them to walk away with a good feeling about me, mm-hmm. which makes sense, and I think it's human to feel that way. Mm-hmm. But I think that next level would be, no, I mean, of course, I want to do well, but more than, more mm-hmm. importantly, I want them to get value out of this. I want them to walk away with something, like you said, like influence where they have, they, there's something about the story that I say that has them meaning uh, something that they can get value from. So I think that's, that's really neat. And I, I, wanna, I wanna talk to you about yeah. the battalion commander assessment process and then yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. What, it, what it's been like to learn or to, to become a battalion commander. But before I do, anything else that you want to talk about or mention regarding that whole experience as the speech facilitator for the secretary of the army. I mean, that, that must've been a, a really eye opening experience. And I just, I, there's so many questions I have on it and, and I, yeah. um, but I, I, I do want to cover some of the other, other topics. Is there anything else you, yeah, yeah. you think is worth mentioning or anything else you want to say about that experience? She has the grace and humility and leadership that, um, every army leader should aspire to have. I mean, I saw it was a masterclass up close and personal with, listen to me when I say this, the greatest leader I've been around. Oh, wow. Period. Wow. Period. The way she could navigate a space, um, the way she afforded folks grace. Grace is not guaranteed. Mm. It is a gift. I know that from you and I share a similar religious uh, perspective. Grace is, is gifted, mm-hmm. um, not guaranteed. And I saw her uh, every time lead with grace from the most minimal interaction to the largest. Mm. And uh, I told her, um, she, she heard me say this when I was, uh, fair, uh, doing, we were doing our farewell. I said, if I could, if I could have a smidgen of that, I'd be <laughs> so much better, not just better leader, but a better husband, you know, father, uh, all of that. Um, so I think people need to know that, that a position like that isn't required. You don't, you're not required to give grace. You're leading a, an army that fights and wins the nation's wars. Yeah. Okay. And from her perspective, she is, or or the secretary as a person, not regardless of who's in the seat, they are driving policy to do that, to enable our our ground forces to fight and win our nation's wars. So to choose to lead with grace is a very unique and um, ultimately beautiful choice to make as a leader. And if if she can do that while still having us prepared to fight um, tonight, China, Russia, whoever else is is was absolutely fantastic. And that's what I learned directly from her and directly from uh, some of the leaders that I was around as well. Just the, the ability to put to meet policy and leadership at the same time is where, you know, if there was an intersection of policy and leadership, it's directly crisscrossing over the Pentagon. That was my experience. 
what did that grace look like from her? What, how did that play itself out in day-to-day interactions or your observations of her? Well, I, here's, here's a not so simple, but um, also not too pointed example. The secretary of the army is a person that, um, regardless of their background, just by their position, has all the uh, authority and no influence. Okay, just by nature of position, they are they can sign everything we do into law for the for the army. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, because they don't grow up in the army, even if they did, right? Like we can think of many, uh, Esper, before he was Secretary of Defense, he was the Secretary of the Army. Mm-hmm. Um, he served, um, he retired from the Army as a Lieutenant Colonel and served in all three components also, active duty, reserve, and National Guard. He's a rarity, mm-hmm. okay? Um, they usually... Are, are a person who, you know, doesn't grow up with the wasta that general officers have. The flip side is the chief is that, right? The chief of staff of the army, the CSA, all influence because they have 30 something close to 40 years of service, mm-hmm. but no policy uh, authority, mm. right? The secretary signs everything. The chief doesn't sign anything into law, right? So grace comes from understanding that position and gaining being influential, not persuasive, but persuasive if need to be (laughs) being influential with and connecting with those leaders who have that on the ground perspective um, with those leaders, giving folks grace to say, let them speak their piece. There's so many times in those rooms where she would listen, just the ability to listen. Mm-hmm. is graceful. Yeah. Um, especially when we're talking about future war um, and we're, we're, we're guessing what that could look like. Mm-hmm. So you obviously have to listen to people who might have combat experience, but literally by your position, you don't have to, mm-hmm. you don't have to. Yeah. So the grace in doing so was an example of, of what I saw. So zooming all the way down to my perspective, right? I've got people in my formation that I've been in the army longer than they have been alive, <laughs> right? But affording them grace to speak up if I ask for a perspective and being humble enough to listen yeah. is something I can absolutely mimic from my time seeing the secretary of the army do it. It's really encouraging to hear, because that she was that way because you never quite know when someone is in that high level position of authority, Mm -hmm. people that are closest to those people, what do they see? And it's really encouraging when they have things like that to say. And, um, she's great, man. All day. Yeah. That's awesome. Big, huge fan. That's encouraging. And, uh, and I'm glad that it wasn't just an opportunity for you to see strategic level, but also Mm -hmm. for you to have that upfront leadership uh, mm-hmm. developmental experience. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. So let's talk BCAP. So for yeah. those that are unfamiliar, and I'm not really that familiar, I just know mm-hmm. that it exists. It's this battalion mm-hmm. commander assessment program mm-hmm. that exists mm-hmm. now. And I don't yes. even know the full background of how it came about. But mm-hmm. my understanding is there was this 
need and desire to make that mm-hmm. battalion command, which is that mm-hmm. lieutenant colonel 05 mm-hmm. leadership experience, more and more competitive and make sure that we're picking the right people to be battalion commanders. And what, mm-hmm. Chevy, you would know this better than me. What, what is the typical size of a battalion? I can't. 700 plus i can't i can't remember yeah, the exact it depends number. i would say probably the the army average is somewhere around 500 500 okay. to 750 and obviously gotcha. you give or take you know there's a bell curve on that so sure. some, a little smaller a little bit bigger sometimes yeah uh anything else you would add to the kind of background of bcap because i'm curious to hear your experience and kind of what you think the value of it is just from having gone through it so uh, just for the listeners out there, there's BCAP, there's CCAP, and there's SMAP. So CCAP is the colonel level, so the 06 level, brigade level commanders, they go through it as well. And then, and BCAP existed before CCAP, so CCAP came afterward. Um, and then the last iteration that they brought about was SMAP, so that's the sergeant major. So your nomin- uh, certain nominative sergeant majors, brigade level sergeant majors, they have to go through um, SMAP. Um, uh, to to command or not command, but to assist commanders at these these different levels, battalion, brigade levels. Um, so those ex- those uh, p- uh, programs exist to assess the talent across the force and screen the talent across the force. So bottom line up front, you have to be invited mm-hmm. to this event that is about a week, and it's an assessment and selection of different areas. So. Um, your intellect, your emotional intelligence, uh, your physical capabilities, because you're going to take a physical fitness test there. You're, you have to write there, so they test your ability to write. Um, you do inter- uh, interview as well, blind, um, a blind interview. So they're asking you questions and can you communicate effectively? And some other uh, things happen at this event as well. Um so you have to have the paperwork. You have to have the evaluations over time to even be screened to be uh, invited. Then you have to accept the invite. Then you have to show up and you have to perform. And then you get score a scores from this event. And then that, that rack and stacks your order of merit list, which determines whether you're going to command or not. Or if you're a sergeant major, whether you're going to uh, be a command sergeant major and be alongside an officer to help them shepherd a unit. So that's the overall uh, gist of it. I think... Um, it came about because, you know, before we weren't physically seeing anybody before they went to command. <laughs> and the former chief of staff of the Army General of Conville and many other leaders have said this. It's the most consequential position, they would say. Battalion command is the most consequential position of any in the force <laughs> uh, with regard to leadership. There's a paper, a couple papers floating around, one of them by Colonel Everett Spain, uh, a department head of the uh, behavioral sciences and leadership at West Point talks about the research behind um, why that position is so consequential and how it has effects on officer retention and soldier retention. Uh, you know, their first experience of a real leader, that first battalion command, determining whether they're in or out of the army. Wow. And for a while, battalions and brigades, you know, were how we fought on the battlefield. So a very consequential position. So that's why it came about. I'll pause there because I know you probably want to ask some questions about the experience itself. Yeah, I'm curious. How did you find the experience? Did you, was it, did it teach you some things about yourself that you did not already know? What What were some of the key takeaways for you? So BCAP, I'm a, 
overall, I'm a big fan of the cap process. So whether it's for sergeant majors, whether it's sergeants majors, sorry, whether it's for colonels or O5s, big fan. I think having gone through ver- various versions of assessment selection type stuff for the soft community, I think uh, an extra layer of screening is not going to hurt. Yeah. You either, you're either a leader or you're not, <laughs> right? You're either capable or you're not, and people will, will, will share. Other part that I like about it is there's this 360 degree component, right? Yeah, we have AER evaluations that say you're the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> what are your peers and your subordinates over the years going to say about you, though? Because, mm. right, messages go out, people are allowed to talk about you, right? And that stuff is brought into your interviews. So oh, I like wow. that too. Like, people have a vote. You can't just get the mission done and crush your people. Because they will tell you, well, yeah, we got a lot of stuff done, but <laughs> this guy or gal is is mm. a bad leader or yeah. toxic or you know counterproductive, whatever words you want to use. And do you get shown those during the process? Is that something that you, as the uh, person being assessed, have visibility on I th- the details I, of that? Or is it more used by the people that are being... And, and if you can't talk about it, please let me know. Yeah, I would, I would say more or less you are aware... And BCAP is ever evolving and and how people get to know what's being said about them is different for every person and every BCAP experience. Uh, For me in particular, I went through BCAP 2, which was uh, a couple years ago now. And uh, I also went through during COVID. So our our BCAP experience was unique in the the sense that they kept us very separate from each other. uh, with regard to how we interact with other people while I was there. Um, but very similar experience to everyone that is going to go to be kept this, this fall. Um, my biggest kind of takeaway of learning from it when you say, Hey, what, you know, what did I learn from it? It was the start of the preparation process for me to really assess myself and be self-aware whether I needed to be a commander or not. Mm. It was, if you, I, you know, in my personal opinion, if you're going to do something like that as right as you possibly can, you are trying to present your best self. <laughs> the way I present my best self is if I know myself and I am seeking self-improvement, um, to quote Socrates, right? Know that self seeks self-improvement. So it started months prior to that. What do I think I want? Is this the right thing for me? Do I actually want to do this? Particularly for me. Do I want to fly during COVID before vaccines were a thing? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? That's a real choice for me. Um, So it started a process of introspection about what could I even be as a lieutenant colonel and a battalion commander? What? Who was I? Did I do the right things over my career? What's going to be in those 360 degree reports? What are my peers and subordinates going to say about me? So for me, it opened up a timeline of reflection that in my 20 years in the Army has probably been the most reflective year Mm. I've ever had. Wow. That's great. Oh, yeah. It was was that kind of thing for me because it started that process. And then, you know, I come out on the list and then you go through the process of you know, you're going to multiple pre-command courses where I'm still thinking. 
about those things that I learned over my career and why I want to do this command thing at the O5 level, right? So more so than anything else, it started me on a path of, am I the right person for any formation that the army is going to bless me to have? Are there anything, so now you're in battalion command, are there Mm -hmm. any any changes that you made to your leadership philosophy or command philosophy as a result of that year of reflection? Is there, is there anything you do differently in your approach now that you've gone through that experience? Absolutely. Um, I learned through that process that there was no way I was going to walk into my battalion and say, here's your new mission, vision, values, and priorities. Get on board. Let's go. Like, (laughs) Not going to happen. I learned through that process that what was probably going to be best for me was to really get a pulse of what they were doing in the organization and then invite them to be a part of uh, our team in a way that I say language. Here's the language I use, for example. It's not my office. It's the battalion commander's office. Mm. There's a difference, right? Like that will still mm. be the battalion commander's office when I leave. It's not yeah. my office. Yeah. It's ours. That's a different it's way to not, look at it. Yeah. It's not my vision. It's not my values. It's not my priorities. They're ours, right? So we, for example, we came up, our vision for the battalion, handwritten by some specialists, some some E7s, a couple officers. We did that together. Um, and I think that's what, and I, we could keep going on and on with our mm-hmm. motto and everything else too. We did all, we co-wrote, co-created all of that stuff. So it was their language. And that's what BCAP and the process of preparation let me know I needed to do. Because I didn't do that when I commanded when I was younger. I came in like, I got all this stuff written down. I got all the ideas. No, not this time. Wow. Well, that, there you go. That's really cool. I wish we had time to kind of dive into that process for having these people as part of your organization, even more junior people help come up with that. We'll have to, we'll have to save that mm-hmm. for, for next time. Um, yeah. I, I do want to ask you, so one of the things that I uh, have observed just from afar mm-hmm. about you is just your very high capacity for just getting things done, managing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You are you went from PhD mm-hmm. while simultaneously being the executive director of military mentors, mm-hmm. while being a husband, mm-hmm. while being a father to mm-hmm. two kids, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to being we already talked about the speech facilitator, mm-hmm. secretary of the army, while executive director, military mentors, all those different mm-hmm. roles. Now into battalion command, you're, you're very, you're, you're hosting as part of military mentors. We can talk more about this. Mm-hmm. You've been doing live events, mm-hmm. publishing articles, mm-hmm. writing, reading. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. just how do you do it? How, like what, what, mm-hmm. what advice would you offer? And, and maybe some of it's, maybe some of it's lessons learned of things you're, you, you, would do differently. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I'm genuinely curious as someone who is also trying to mm-hmm. make sure I am doing excellent work at work while also pursuing some of the things I'm passionate about, but mm-hmm. not at work. And, uh, also of course being 
present as a husband, as a father, mm-hmm. in my community, all those things. So, I, and I'm sure there's a lot of leaders that are, that are in the same boat. They're trying to figure out how do I, how do I really prioritize and still get after some of these priorities that I have. And, and mm-hmm. as you will say, often put it, make a dent in the universe. So, so tell us a little yeah. bit about kind of your your way of self management. Any advice you have as yeah. we're wrapping up here for just how to how to effectively manage one's life and, and get a lot done yeah. that matters. So um, I, there's a couple of different pointers I would give. And uh, people, some people have heard me say this because I've said it on podcasts before, Gotcha 6 podcast in particular. Um, first things first is you got to decide whether you want to manage time or whether you want to manage energy. Time is something we can't touch. That thing is going to happen. It's, you know, it's ephemeral. You can't touch it. It's like vapor. You're trying to hug a ghost when you're trying to manage time. Um, And time is also eternal. So for a human to try to manage time is is pretty pompous. So I'd argue this. You got to manage energy. So I know how much I need to sleep. I know how much I need to eat. I know how I need to work out. I know, et cetera, et cetera, right? I know I'm more introverted than not. So, you know, getting in front of my battalion to speak is going to drain me. Going to a conference that Military Mentors puts on for a whole weekend is going to crush my soul. (laughs) So, what do I need to do on the back end of that to make sure my energy reserves come back up uh, so I can be invested in my family and be just as engaging uh, with my two kids and my wife as I am on a stage in front of 500 people? Um, because ultimately, they are more important than any person in that 500-person crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, It just is what it is. So I read a book called The Power of Full Engagement by Tony Schwartz and Jim Lohr. And uh, they talk about how uh, time management is not a thing uh, and that energy management is. And it talks about the different components of energy management regard to your spiritual, your emotional, your physical. Um, and I, right now I forget the, the fourth one. Um, but I encourage you to grab the book and, uh, yeah. see what we'll, they're talking we'll about. link to that. Yeah. In oh, the yeah. Show notes Powerful sure. engagement for sure. It changed my life truly to figure out how I needed to manage my energy. Little things for me, since I'm more introverted than not, before I need to go into a room and do an engagement, I can just walk in the bathroom, splash my face with some water, and take that three quick breaths and be in the quiet. And man, that'll zoom me up. I might as well drink a cup of coffee, seriously. <laughs> but I learned through that, through that book and through my own kind of figuring out what I needed to do that. Another case in point, I did a talk at Suffolk. It was a DEI conference. I was the final uh, keynote speaker of the day. Very large crowd. It's a four-hour drive. When I drove down there, listened to podcasts, you know, getting my kind of notes together, right? When I drove back, four hours, utter silence. No phone calls. Wow. No podcasts, no music. Four hours of dead silence in the car. Um, Chevy Because I needed, yeah, I needed that amount of time to make sure when I got home to put the kids in the bed and engage with my spouse and everything, my energy was all the way back up. Mm-hmm. And it was. So that's my first one, manage energy. My second one, and then I'll pause, 
is I bullet journal. So I take account for what I do with the time that I do have. You know, I am very reflective about my priorities for the day. I annotate daily how I did with my priorities, my three part, my personal three priorities. I take account for what I'm grateful for every day. That's at the end of the day. What am I grateful for today? Um, and I, you know, I take over time, you know, that, that data aggregates every day for the week and then each week for a month. And I tally it. Cal, I can tell you the percentage I was happy last month, mm. right? Because of the way I tally my data. I do that month to month all over the year. And then I do a year reflection on that data. I can tell you how happy I was this past year compared to two years ago. Wow. I can tell you how many dates my wife and I went on. You know how you kind of debate sometimes like, mm -hmm. man, when's the last time we went on a date? No, I, got, I can tell <laughs> you, you exactly it. when you the last time. I got the data. Yeah. <laughs> I can also say, well, honey, you know, we, so Ashley and I, this is full disclosure. Ashley and I average about, you know, two to three or dates a month. So mm -hmm. almost once a week, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm getting toward the end of the month and I realize we've only been on one, hey, guess what it's time to do? Invest mm -hmm. in each other. That's good. I can also tell you two to three times a month means that's about 25 times a year we're going out on a date, right? So if I have a high year of 38, we're doing really good on our dates. Yeah, yeah. And then we got to look back at the year. What made us date so much? Was it were we being proactive about the time? Mm. Hit dive one level deeper, right? I look at the types of dates. And if the types of dates are us just going to a bar or just eating, or we only seen like one movie, went to one museum last year, man, we need to kind of look at what we're doing. Because mm -hmm. not, not only is that maybe not quality time invested, that's also costly and expensive. Yeah. Just eating and drinking all the time. Yeah. As opposed to having other experiences, right? Wow. So realizing that for us, about a month ago, we went to Italy, no kids, because we hadn't done something like that in the previous year, mm -hmm. and we needed that kind of investment mm -hmm. in each other. So when I say a bullet journal, I bullet journal, and I have the data mm -hmm. to see where I need to place the time that I do have. Um, and it's been like that book life altering because mm. guess what i don't do cal i can't tell you anything about game of thrones yeah you do not watch one TV. episode do you do you not watch tv at I all i do okay I, I i do watch tv i'm not a person that can do seasons mm -hmm. and 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 episodes on top of episodes of stuff because that's not just that's not the way i want to invest in my time mm -hmm. i can't read if i'm doing that i can't go yeah. on dates if i do that i can't yeah. invest in my kids i can't uh do this nonprofit stuff if i'm sitting in front yeah. of tv for two or three or four or five yeah. hours it's a trade-off for sure it's a big trade-off uh, on the bullet journal is that handwritten is that something you type handwritten and then is that a specific type of journal when you say bullet journal, or is that just yeah. a form of journaling? It's a form of journaling. Okay. So if if the, the listeners out there want to look up bullet journaling, there's tons of YouTube videos, there's tons of stuff out there. You can get pre-formatted bullet journals. 
that have trackers and systems already in them if you want to make it um, mm -hmm. easy proof for you. Um, but for me, I have to get a mole scan that is blank and I have my own process of filling it out. People think I'm crazy when they see me like drawing all these lines and, you know, getting it ready because I do them kind of in six, six month chunks. And then mm -hmm. I'll kind of finish out the year just so I can plan ahead because I also use it as a calendar. Mm -hmm. It's how I do calendar management. So I got to, you know, put stuff that your podcast, this podcast recording is, you know, in my bullet journal because it's how whoa. I manage my day. All right. All right. They made the journal. So it made the journal. They all events. Um, <laughs> All events, events and tasks are in there. Things to do, things that are due are in there. My gratitude, my notes, my Do you use it for work as well? Is this I do. I carry, this, I carry this thing all day. So this thing's with you all the time? All the or, time. Okay. And it, I'm imagining by you mentioning the word bullet journal, mm -hmm. are, are you making bullet points versus yes. more narrative? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I have a section for narrative. Uh, for me, I, it's just kind of at the end of the month. It's called yeah. brain drain, and it's where I you know, kind of jet yeah. out notes and stuff. But if I want to do something creative, it doesn't go in the bullet journal. I have a whole like creativity journal just for that, for sketching yeah. things out and uh, thinking about things in different ways. But I've been bullet journaling for years now, years. Um, yeah. So I can go back five years and tell you the data That's so from cool. five years ago and yeah. the comparison. What I think it can be very nerdy and robotic, though, Cal. I gotta well, let you know. Like, no, but I, I like. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I, there is a reason why you are able to do what you do, and mm -hmm. I, that's why I appreciate you you sharing that with us because mm -hmm. it's no accident that you can manage all that you manage and still have very healthy relationships and. Mm -hmm accomplish a lot and stay consistent mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. the things that you really care about. I mean, you mentioned some of the things you don't do, mm -hmm. which gives you the space and the time to do some of those other things. So I, I appreciate mm -hmm. it. And I think the idea of bullet journaling is probably encouraging to a lot of folks because some, some of us, I know I have some friends who are like, man, I just, I can't stand writing long yeah. journal entries. Yeah. Like I just, I can't, yeah. I can't sustain that. I can do it for mm -hmm. a day if I have a lot of time, but just the idea of, mm -hmm. you know, maybe jotting down, hey, these are my two or three, four priorities for the day. Here's some things I'm thankful for. And then here's how mm -hmm. I did at the end of the day and doing it consistently. I could see how some folks could could find that to be more, more doable than uh, a long narrative journal yeah. that you're, it's just hard to keep up. It also ended up helping me with writing because mm. it's also like my own personal writing practice. So yeah. I'm constantly writing, right? Like even if it's little onesie, twosie phrases, couple sentences, it helps me keep up on my writing practice as much as my, I try to keep up on reading practice. But, you know, I think something to also relate, depend upon what you want to track because the tracking systems for me are very important. Um, I'm going to tell you something I learned from my wife in this this thing. I can come off um, sometimes cold uh, and distant uh, just because of some of my life experiences. Uh, and I'm a, a gentleman that uh, has struggled with PTSD. And there was there was times in my past where she was like, hey, man, you you seem kind of cold. Are you OK? Like, yeah, I'm just fine. I'm fine. <laughs> and, you know, just not unpacking it, really. Mm -hmm. So. Let me tell you something. When I started tracking my mood, 
my assessment of my mood. And then after a month of doing that, reflected it back to my wife like, hey, do you think I was pretty happy this month? And she was like, nah, you're pretty <laughs> meh. You're pretty meh this you gotta month. Love your, you got to love the honest brokers in your life. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> I was like, wow, that's not what I, that's not what I'm trying. My data says this. Mm. What did that tell me? What it told me was I felt a certain way, but I was being received another. Mm-hmm. And that is power in data to bring it all the way back to the beginning of this conversation with the PhD stuff, what the PhD taught me. What is the data telling me versus what I want it to tell somebody else? Mm. What questions is it making me reflect on? So my wife was saying, that's not what I experienced of you. So it didn't make me, well, now I need to like chart my data differently. No, Mm -hmm. I needed to chart it the same exact way. But I needed to ask the question, well, how can I show her that I'm actually not meh, that I'm actually happy? So it actually changed my life in a way that was really powerful. Mm -hmm. That again, to another piece of our conversation with regard to really investing in that little bit of smidgen of time I might have, where's my energy at? So they can actually see that I'm not meh, that I am happy if it's just 30 minutes before bed because I got Mm -hmm. home so late. Yeah. Right? This stuff is all interconnected, I think. Yeah. And it's probably so helpful to have that data that you could go back to Mm-hmm. to check and, and ask those questions versus just a broad sense of, oh, well, you know what? Last month, may- maybe I was meh. Yeah. But then you go back yeah. and you're like, actually, something's not something's not adding up here. I, I was mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. by the data, but mm-hmm. there's something that I'm not, I'm not demonstrating that. There's a disconnect here. Yeah. Uh, dude, that's powerful. I love that. Well, uh, mm-hmm. Chevy, it's always awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for coming back on. I do, before we wrap up here, I do want to just ask you to tell the listeners out there uh, a little bit about Military Mentors, what you what you guys are doing, and mm-hmm. then just any way that people can follow you, follow mm-hmm. the Military Mentors and kind of what you guys are doing. Because you're doing some amazing work, some awesome events. Mm-hmm even though it sounds like they exhaust you. So I, I, it makes me appreciate the fact that you're doing those events even more. Yeah, man. Uh, so yeah, tell us, just tell the folks a little bit about Military Mentors, what, what you guys are up to and how people can connect with the latest and greatest you guys are doing. So you guys can find militarymentors.org at that website, militarymentors.org, or you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Or X, as they call it now, I think, is the, is the new new version of Twitter. So you can find us on all those platforms. And the bottom line is we're a, a registered nonprofit that seeks to um, elevate, educate, and facilitate mentoring for the military and beyond. Uh, and I, I won't get into what that means, but what we're trying to do is push uh, mentoring to the forefront of folks' minds and not let it kind of be like an additional duty or something that you just do on the side, Um, Mm. whether you're in the military or not. So we do some work with civilian organizations. Obviously, we do some work with military organizations and we cross-pollinate. So ideas I, we all find as a team from industry, we bring back uh, to the the military and vice versa. We're not all army uh, on the team, all volunteers. No one gets paid for what they do. 
we even have a, a mill spouse that works with our team. So you got Navy represented, our Air Force represented, even the VA is representative uh, amongst our team. And we have a board of directors that's also very diverse. We um, are very, very picky about, you know, having a diverse member set, set of members on our team so we can understand this kind of thing called uh, mentoring. Uh, our kind of really important things right now that we're doing um, are two things. Um, we do something called The Moment. It is a conference that we put on um, in Alexandria. Uh, we just put on our fourth one. And uh, it's quaint. It's uh, small. It's uh, capped. So you're not going to see 500 people there. Uh, you're going to see 50 to 60 max um, because that's how many people we want. We don't hashtag it. There's no live streaming and all of that stuff. Um, we just have a small, quaint day conference. We would call it a non-conference because you walk into a space that is very much a living room and you mm -hmm. sit and you listen to a speaker that's not even mic'd up and we'll provide you food and stuff. But this thing is about deeply investing in yourself for a day, um, reflecting for a day, and listening to people talk about the importance of mentoring from a diversity perspective, an inclusion perspective, from an intergenerational mentoring perspective, but really trying to get to the deep-seated idea of what developing another person can be. Um, the next one will be in January, the last Saturday in January. January is National Mentoring Month, so it just makes sense for us to do it then. The other thing that we do is the emissary program. We just started cohort seven. We've been doing these things um, every semester, if you want to call it, uh, for the last couple of years, because we do have a spring and a fall cohort. Um, this is a five-month program fellowship. We screen and select people who are either nominated or apply online, and we put through put them through a rigorous online curriculum that looks at aspects of leadership and looks at aspects of mentoring and being a successful communicator in those spaces and being influential in those spaces as well. So we have firefighters. We have people in the Greek army. <laughs> uh, we have uh, reservists. Um, we've had professors on campuses. Uh, we've had spouses and everything in between amongst these cohorts. Um, most uh, interesting about this thing is we just started doing the initial meeting in person in Alexandria. Mm. So this most recent cohort, everybody came here from all over the world. We got an in-person experience on a Sunday all together. And then the, the, the rest of the time uh, will be via distance. So we try to manage... You know, there was a talk for a bit that we were going to do this all in person. It's just hard to do in this world, and yeah. especially when you have people internationally in these cohorts. But, you know, there's something very powerful about bringing pe people in a cohort together up front to really get to know each other and then following on online. So if you're interested, please look us up on the Internet. Uh, please find me um, or go into the show notes. I'm sure Cal, I have something there yep. posted and look into what we're doing. Again, none of us are millionaires. All of us got other jobs and things that we do. We're just intentional about what we do. Yeah. Uh, we're all purpose-minded, purposeful, and trying to dent the universe um, around mentoring. It is, I'd argue that mentorship is more important to leadership, but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I will put, uh, I'll definitely put links to connect with Dr. Cook 
Dr. <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Cook <laughs> and, uh, and military mentors in the show notes this episode. I highly recommend the moment I've been. It's an amazing, it, it is a different experience. It is not your typical, it is not a conference. I was going to say it's not your typical conference. It's yeah. not a conference. It is an intimate experience. You'll get to know the people that are there, amazing speakers. Uh, mm-hmm. You could just tell it, it's it's got a very personal touch to the experience. And that's a testament to your you and your team, Chevy. So, well, hey, Chevy, thanks so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to see you, connect with you, talk to you. I always learn a ton. And mm-hmm. uh, thank you just for your continued contribution to leadership, to mentorship, and, uh, and thanks for sharing some of those really key tips for just how you manage your time or your energy rather, and, uh, and just how you're able to accomplish all the important things you're doing. So I, I learned a lot just listening today. So thanks so much, brother. Thanks, Cal. I really appreciate it. I, I too like what you're doing. I listen to the, the podcast. I share it. Uh, we've shared it on a newsletter a number of times. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I appreciate all the people you bring on. And I, I definitely shouldn't be in the caliber of speakers that you have. <laughs> so I appreciate your willingness to afford me some grace and ask me some good questions. Um, and, you know, stuff like this allows me to fulfill my purpose. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm purpose built to serve others and getting to share a, a, a note or two um, on this platform is fulfilling that purpose. So thank you for letting me do so, Cal. You are. You are definitely purpose built for that. Thanks, Chevy. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Hey, friends, I just want to thank you for sticking around to the end. A special thanks to Dr. Chevy Cook for a wonderful interview. Thank you for coming on the show. I do want to encourage you to check out Military Mentors. There will be links in the episode show notes to Military Mentors and all the great work that they are doing if you want to connect with Dr. Cook and that team. Also, just wonderful insights from Dr. Cook. I really appreciated at the end the idea of managing your energy. It was awesome to learn about some of the work he had done with character development and certainly awesome to learn about some of those reflection moments. I encourage you as well, and it was a great insight for me to reflect on those experiences. Sometimes we have to create space in order to force ourselves to reflect, and that sounded like a cool opportunity at BCAP that Dr. Cook had. So maybe it's time for you, uh, certainly for me, to create space and create a moment, create a journal or have a journal, and just take some time to reflect on the experience and allow us to glean some of those insights from many of the experiences we have. So again, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great week. Remember that life is short. Let's go make it count.